Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it is applied by the Holy Spirit to our minds and hearts, uh, the way it is uh, transforming and will transform our world. Uh, We know that it is powerful because it comes under such powerful attack. Uh, You know an opponent by the strength of his enemies. And so, Father, we know that you are a formidable opponent. So we pray now that you would have this word to enter into our minds and hearts and that it would defend us in a time of great trial. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. I want to read a few quotes about Romans. Martin Luther said, This letter is truly the most important piece of the New Testament. It is purest gospel. William Tyndall said, It is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. The more it is studied, the easier it is to understand. The more it is chewed, the more pleasant it becomes. The more it is searched, the more precious things are found. John Calvin. When one gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance opened to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Gordon H. Clark a contemporary. It is the most profound of all the epistles and perhaps the most important book in the Bible. When you study Romans and you do any searching on the internet, you will find this quote. It is anonymous and as far as I can tell, it is without attribution. I couldn't find anybody to attribute it to originally, but it is very good. Romans will delight the greatest logician and captivate the mind of the genius. Yet it will bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then lift you up. It will strip you naked and then clothe you with eternal elegance. Uh, Some people have favorite books of the Bible. And I know just a few weeks ago, someone told me their favorite book was Romans. Uh, Anybody's favorite book, Romans, here? Nada? Must not have been here then. I think it's Jeff. Jeff is a bold. Uh, I think it's uh, a difficult book to have as your favorite. Uh, I think William Tyndall said it right when he says, the more it is studied, the easier it is to understand. The more it is chewed, the more pleasant it is. But I don't know that any of us have chewed on Romans enough to come to that conclusion that William Tyndall did. It is beautiful. And there are wonderful quotes that we take from it. But... It is long, 16 chapters long, and it is dense, very dense, very difficult to understand at parts. But why would I want to talk about Romans in a way as if I'm going to about to begin a two-year book study on it for two verses? I'm going to present to you two verses from it. It is logical. Romans 12 starts a whole new section of Romans. And so Paul has spent chapters 1 through 11 with the most comprehensive 
presentation of the gospel that you find in the Bible. He's writing to people that he's not visited their church yet. But when you read later, the whole chapter of, of, of uh, chapter 16, the last chapter, he greets, I think it's 23 people by name. He knows many of these people that are at this church for some reason, many of them personally. And so his heart goes out to these people. And he's written them this incredibly complex presentation of the gospel for 11 chapters. And then he comes to chapter 12. Let's cap the first 11 chapters off with reading the last few verses of it. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So obviously Paul has completed this thought that he has really spent 11 chapters developing. It's about 6,700 words that he's dedicated to this. And it's probably among the most special 6,700 words that you can draw out of the Bible. And now he says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So see, what do you say to people after you've explained to them the beauty of the gospel? These are fellow believers he's writing to. He's writing this letter to people that know God, who have experienced the first 11 chapters. And he's pointing out to them now we make the transition. This is what it all comes down to. This is how I want you to live. This is how God expects you to live. So, Paul has shared the gospel beautifully, and now what does he ask for? He asks for the, his readers to sacrifice themselves. And now, if anyone has the right to ask believers to sacrifice themselves, it's Paul. Paul has lived 20 years, by the time he's written this letter, of a life of sacrifice for God, pouring himself out for the, uh, for the uh, sake of the church, for the sake of the kingdom of God. So he knows that of which he speaks. He is very familiar with sacrifice. This is, I believe, also the most important plea that Paul makes in all of Scripture. Sometimes Paul commands us to do things, and yet what does he say here? I beseech you. So see, he's pleading with us to understand what it is that he's saying. He's just presented 6,700 words of the most beautiful presentation of the gospel. And then he says, I beseech you, therefore, listen to me, you who have benefited from God's mercy in this way. This is what I want you to do. All of his other pleas, all of his other commands in Scripture, I believe, emanate from this. This is the heart of our response to the gospel. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Like I said, he's writing to believers. Unbelievers need not sacrifice. They cannot 
sacrifice. The sacrifice of unbelievers are unacceptable to God. We see that over and over again in the Old Testament, where God is rejecting sacrifices that were not done appropriately even, even by believers, even by people that meant well. But God does want sacrifice. He does command us to sacrifice. And what does he give as the reason for his call upon us? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. So mercy is at the heart of the first 11 chapters. And it is that mercy that Paul calls upon. Does he call upon what he's done for these people? No. He doesn't point to his 20 years like he did with the Corinthians. He points to his sacrifices. But here he says, no, I call upon the mercies of God. What I've just explained to you, that is all that should be necessary for me to motivate you to understand and to accept what it is that I'm saying. God has given all for us. And it is our response to give our all to him. Now, some of you might not have a handout. I actually... uh, made these and brought them today, and there are still maybe about 20 over on the counter, and I'll refer to them. You don't really need it until the end. At the end, we'll sing a song that the words are only in here, but uh, the, the uh, part of the handout is like this. It's mostly blank. Mine is unlike Phil's, isn't it? I, I give you do-it-yourself handouts. So uh, Paul pleads with us, his plea is for us to do or allow to be done to us five things. Now, you'll notice that they're S, C, T, S, G. That's down one through five. But down here in the picture, they go from the bottom up. And so you want to start with the S, and I'll give you that one. I'll give you all of them eventually. But uh, the first one is sanctify. Now, you write in the white spots, and there's an empty white spot at the end And I saved that for a letter that I want you to put in there. And for now, you can put the letter I in that spot at the bottom on the far right of sanctify. So now, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Now, sanctification is what this is about. We are to present our bodies to God, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And in part, this is sanctification. This is an aspect of our salvation that God draws us in tight for. Justification, it's a little different. Justification, God just exercises that upon us. It's true that many plead for God for that, and yet that is God doing all that work. Whereas with sanctification, he, he enjoys having us enlisted in this. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts to work out the salvation, but yet we have a part in it. Now notice that uh, are you set apart unto God? That's what sanctification means. Now sanctification can mean the whole thing, right? Sanctification is a word that describes the whole process from the point you're a Christian to the point you die, you're being sanctified. But yet, at its root, sanctify means to set apart, to dedicate to God. So when you read the Old Testament and you read about the sacrificial system and you read about the procedures that were required to prepare those animals and you read about how the various ingredients were to be mixed to make up for the incense, that's very precise. And it was in part setting that apart to be God's alone. And that's why Nadab and Abihu died, because 
They wanted to do their own thing. They didn't want to do God's thing. But God says, no, no, no. Sanctification is done in this way. So God directs us how we are to sanctify ourselves. Uh, Peter told his listeners in 1 Peter 3 this, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The Lord God is in our hearts. And there's another verse I'll read later that states that clearly again. But we live in a very interesting time after Christ where the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, make his home in us. In the Old Testament, where was God? Ostensibly, where was God? In the temple. God's glory filled the temple. Where is the temple? You're looking at it, right? We are God's temple as individuals dedicated to God. Paul pointed at Toby. Toby's the temple in our midst. But so we are temples to God. God lives within us. Sanctification is to dedicate that temple to God. And this is a dedication that is continual. It's a dedication that respects this, that, as God's property. So do we respect our own bodies and the bodies of our fellow believers as God's temple? Because it's not our property. Our body is not our own. So sanctification is dedication. And the reason I had you write an I at the end over there is that sanctification really begins inwardly. It begins inwardly, and that's why the I is there. Sanctification is something that starts with your heart. You examine your heart. You set yourself apart for God. There are outward aspects of it. But in the Old Testament, when you're talking about the purification rites, they were pretty much all outward. God has turned that around. Now, even in the Old Testament, though, God wanted you to sanctify yourselves as well. But people could rely merely upon these outward forms and rituals. And so they didn't want to do the nasty business of sanctifying themselves and addressing sin in themselves. So instead, they wanted to be removed from that and participate in these sacrifices. But now we really have no such luxury. You are a temple of God walking around the earth, and it's your responsibility to keep that temple ship-shape. Whether you wanted that responsibility or not, you got it by being saved. It is your privilege. It is your responsibility but it is your privilege to cleanse that temple. And you're familiar, perhaps, with the Old Testament where periodically they had to haul rubbish out of the temple because it had been converted into various other means other than serving God during various kingly administrations. Sometimes our temples get filled with rubbish, and we must haul it out. And so that's what sermons are all about. That's what your studying in the scripture and your devotions are all about. It's about God pointing out where you have rubbish in your temple that you might not be aware of. Others might be aware of it, but they might not. But yet it's your responsibility to go to God and say, God, I've got rubbish in my temple. Please help me. I want to get rid of it, but it just keeps coming back. I regard sanctification as guard duty. Anybody in the military... 
had been in the military. Uh, guard duty, though, is something that you kind of fundamentally understand the need of. Um, when you're in war, especially, and basically when you're not at war, you're practicing the guard duty such that when you are at war, it's a habit, it's a duty, it's a responsibility. But I can remember guard duty, being trained in guard duty. And this is what you're supposed to do. This is where you're supposed to walk. This is how often you're supposed to do this. And if you have somebody come upon you, you say, halt, who goes there? Now, it was hard to say that because I'm like, well, these are all my fellow jarheads. You know, they're not going to mug me. They're not going to shoot me. But yet, you're supposed to do it. Halt, who goes there? As if I'm going to shoot them with my non-existent weapon that I didn't have. They didn't even trust me with a weapon then. Now they're trying to take them away from me. I can understand. But, but back then, I was supposed to be a guard. But so see, halt who goes there. When you sanctify yourself to God, when you're doing this daily practice of temple cleansing, do you say, are you prepared to say, halt who or what goes there? Or are you so accustomed to mistreating and abusing God's property that you don't think like that? See, you have the responsibility to be that guard. Halt! Who goes there? Where is my mind going? My mind's in the gutter. Why am I not drawing it back? I'm God's holy temple. I need to be more diligent in my guard duties. Part of sanctification also, and leading to the next one, is that we do benefit from having these hedges in place. Guard duty is another way of saying that you have these daily practices. You have good habits, good godly habits. So when you are confronted with sin, you know where sin leads. You know where the temptation to sin leads. What we often try to deceive ourselves in is how we got here. How we got here to where I'm sinning And we don't think to back up to say, okay, what did I start thinking about that got me here? Backtrack. Why am I here? Backtrack. Why am I here? And then you think, oh, you know, this is how I get there a lot. That is where you then have identified the need for a hedge. And so you put a hedge in your life such that when you're here and you know that it is a logical consequence often for you to wind up here entering into sin, don't do it. Put a hedge in place, catch yourself, know when you're about to indulge in various things, uh, lust, bitterness of heart, judgmentalism of others. Um, all of these things can be headed off. You just need hedges, these, these early warning systems that can help you detect when it's occurring. So number one was sanctify. And this is the first thing that, that Paul hits upon that we are to sanctify ourselves. We are sacrifices to God, and a sacrifice must be sanctified. The second one that starts with a C is with the next words, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world. Now, conform doesn't fit there. So if you started writing, you messed up. If you have an eraser, you can fix it, but if not, you have to scribble. That's why I always use a pencil. I've used a pencil since I was a teenager. I, I, I almost never carry a pen, and I always have to borrow someone else's pen if I need one. But so this word is crucify. And the letter that goes at the end is also an I. Do not be conformed to this world. 
Now, part of our human nature, part of being created a human in society is that we are conformists. I know some of us don't like to hear that. We like to think that we're entirely and utterly unique, and you are, but yet we conform. We conform very quickly, and actually it is a wonderful design that God has made us to conform so quickly. It's often very good. It's very helpful because we're sinful. If we didn't conform, we would be fighting a lot more than we do. But because we can conform and we can accommodate others to many extents, uh, some of us more so, some of us less so based on our character, but yet we are called to conform. But here, what does he say? Do not be conformed to this world. So Paul isn't telling us not to conform. He's telling us what not to conform to. And conform is outward more than inward. To be conformed is to be pressed upon, to be changed. See, because you're believers, you've got God in you, you are a temple. The conformity that our society attempts to bring upon you, you have a natural resistance to. You have a supernatural resistance to, but you have a natural affinity to it as well because you've still got that natural old man still living in your heart. He's dead, supposedly, right? But he just keeps coming back to life. He just won't die. He's like a zombie in there. And so you have a dead zombie in you that wants to sin, that wants to direct your life. And it's your responsibility to continually crucify that zombie that lives in your heart. Now, conforming, it's not so much what you do or don't do. It's not just that. That's important, of course. But conformity begins here. It begins in your mind. And so do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, the mind is central to who we are as humans. Your mind, your will, directs your emotions. Now, sometimes, yes, we'd get that backwards and the emotions drive our wills. But yet, for the most part, all of us are rational beings. And to a great extent, our minds control or should control our behavior. We might sin against it. We might defy it. But yet we know better. What is the part that knows better? Is it your emotions that know better? Oh, no. It's your mind. It's your will. It's your conscience. You know you ought not do this or that. But you do it anyway because you're angry, because you're happy. You know, we do it for many reasons. But sometimes our emotions can overwhelm our rational mind. Now, what do we crucify? We crucify that old man. And what is that old man attempting to do? That old man is attempting to instrumentally control you and your body. To a degree, that old man, you give over control. And you allow that old man to direct your thoughts, to direct your affections, to control your heart, to affect what it is that you do, what it is that you love, what it is that you hate in this world. John Owen, in Indwelling Sin in the Believer, said this, Speaking of the law of sin that works within us, that is that old man personified. Whoever contends against it, the law of sin, shall know and find that it is present with them, that it is powerful in them. He shall find the stream to be strong who swims against it, though he who rolls along with it be insensible to it. So the old man is glad to hide inside you. But when you try to crucify something, that old man values, then you learn his power. 
then you learn what crucifixion of the flesh means because your flesh cries out, no, 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 don't do that. And oftentimes we give in to that cry. John Owen says this, every, every sin increases the principle and fortifies the habit of sinning. Sometimes we think the tiny sins are meaningless, but they're not. It is an evil treasure that increases by doing evil. And where does this evil treasure lie? It is in the heart. There it is laid up. There it is kept in safety. All the men in the world, all the angels in heaven, cannot dispossess a man of this treasure. It is so safely stored in his heart. We all have this piece of the temple that we say, no, God, it's off limits. The rubbish I have in there, I like, I value it, I want to keep it. And so God basically gives us crowbars and he gives us plastic explosives to get in there. You know, go ahead, open it. But see, none of that matters, does it? As long as you want to protect it, God isn't getting at it. Why? Why is that? Why doesn't God just come into us and kill that treasure? Because he wants us to do it. We open the treasure house, as it were, and say, God, please destroy this treasure. Please destroy the affection that I have for this treasure. Ultimately, that's what crucifixion of the flesh comes down to. You go deeper and deeper, and you find these things that you excuse in yourself. You know what's going to happen when that happens? The instant you find something that your old man wants to protect, that old man is going to say, oh, but this isn't so bad. And actually, so many other people are worse. Deflection. We are so easily deflected because now we're focused on somebody else. Wonderful. I can leave off of this painful crucifixion of myself. I can just instead imagine how Joe should hear these words. Man, Joe could really be improved by dealing with that sin. Whereas for me, you know, it's there, but it's not nearly as powerful as it is in Joe. So how can I help Joe? It's all about helping people, right? Now I'm helping Joe. It isn't about me trying to deflect this crucifixion of my flesh. It's about me being a good guy, about me being a good Christian, serving others, doing all these things that I'm supposed to do. Oh, Satan is so subtle. And you know what? You have in your heart a beachhead for every demon that Satan can throw at you. That demon can go right to your treasure store because he's safe there. You've made that safe for him. And from there, he can fight you. And so the more we crucify the flesh, the smaller that treasure house dwindles. That treasure is dissipating. It is being used up. Like John Owen said, it increases by doing evil. And so if you're not exterminating that treasure, the treasure is increasing because you value it, and it will continue to grow. So crucify. So you had two words so far, sanctify and crucify, and both had eyes on the end. And now the third word, this is a word. I didn't used to think it was a word, and actually I probably just realized it was a word when I was looking for a word yesterday. But the latter part of verse 2 says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Another word for transformed that fits what I wanted to say was transmogrify, if you can believe it. That is a word. I thought people made that up, but it is a word. Trans, T-R-A-N-S, mogrify, M-O-G-R-I-F-Y. So see, to transmogrify is to transform. It's a, it's a synonym for metamorphosis. So see, what we are to do is to be transmogrified. We can't transmogrify ourselves. Only God does that. And God does it from the inward out. Because it says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But again, see, we do have a part in it. God gives us a part. We are given the responsibility to set up that guardhouse, patrol these things, crucify the flesh, and now we've left an opening for God to transmogrify us. So see, we do it differently, though. We want to start here. We really sometimes don't want to sanctify ourselves. We don't want to crucify ourselves. We just want to be new. So it's all outward. I don't have that sin anymore. I'm a new man. But if it didn't come from the inward out, it's just a matter of time. Yes, that sin is there. It's just waiting to explode. You're like, you're like containing, trying to contain a powder keg that's going to go off because you're doing it the wrong way. And this is so often the case with people trying to deal with besetting sins. They don't want to do the hard work of sanctifying themselves, setting up all those hedges, admitting to God that they're sinful, and then admitting that they want it crucified. They want that treasure house open to God and his cleansing power. Instead, they come here and they start setting up the hedges. They're not really so much hedges as protections, but they're ways by which they are going to accomplish this, that, or the other. Today, I'm not going to do this. Today, I'm not going to do that. I, 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 I. So the transmogrification occurs because God does it. We open ourselves up to God's Holy Spirit and say, God, I cannot change myself. You, please change me. So see, there is something fundamentally at work here that's upside down from the way we normally want to try it because, see, this requires absolute humility. Whereas the other approach, the one we favor, can contain pride. And yet God does not allow that to be successful to the extent that anything that you're attempting to do is motivated by selfish pride. God will be sure to prevent it from working. You might think that it works for a time, but it will fail because in the long run, it gives no glory to God. It isn't doing the right thing in the right way. So now, God tells us, no temptation has taken you but such as is common to man, but that he will allow you a way out, a way to escape it. How many of us probably have questioned the inerrancy of the authority of Scripture just based on that one verse alone. You just say, I don't see it, God. I don't see the way out. But it's because we are attempting to get the different behavior without going through the process by which God has done it. And that crushes our selfishness. It crushes our pride. And so we really don't choose that path. We don't like that path. It makes us uncomfortable. 
Now, the fourth word, did everybody get transmogrify? And by the way, that one had an I on the end also. So it's I, I, I. Different eyes than me, right? It's inward, inward, inward. But so now we get to the next word, and this is satisfy. And this portion is be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You're proving out the perfect will of God. See, by this time, your conduct has changed. You're a different person. You are being transmogrified, and your behavior is being affected. Your affections are being affected. What you want to do and what you do do are correlating more and more as you indulge in these three things, these three I-I-I's, because God is now at work in you and he's changing things. Paul said in verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Who defines reasonable? You do, don't you? You define it well or you define it poorly, but you define it. That's why... Whenever other people are trying to make us do something that is for our own good, we resist it. We regard their intrusion as unreasonable. It might be something good they want us to do, but it has to come from the inside. If anybody attempts to do this to us, we resent it. We reject it. Now, sure, we might be conformists in a way, that we will indulge them, oh, yeah, I'll do that, oh, yeah, I'll do that, oh, yeah, I'll do that. But then we'll do a variety of things, passive resist them. Oh, I forgot today, right? I forgot to work out. I forgot to eat my vegetables. You know, there are things that are good for us that we just don't want to do. They haven't affected our heart. They haven't affected our will. They haven't uh, worked themselves out into our behavior. So how... Does God educate you, though, on what is reasonable and what is unreasonable? See, because you all have warped views of what reasonable is, to be honest, as do I. We like our definitions. We want our definitions. So how does God change our definitions? He informs our consciences, prayer, study, hearing sermons, having conversations with people, the experiences that we have in life, even reflection, our meditation, our self-examination. All of these things cumulatively come to then define our sense of reasonableness. And to the degree that we are not indulging in those things, we're dumbing down our definition of what is reasonable. We are cutting ourselves slack. Because we love ourselves. that's That's the truth. You love yourself and you will be as kind and loving to yourself as you can possibly justify. Even at other people's expense. Because that's who we are. We're selfish human beings. And that is conformity to our culture. It's conformity to our fallen nature with which directs our culture. So it is only when we are working in opposition to that by the renewing of our mind that we're even aware that we're doing it, that we're dumbing down what is reasonable. What can God expect of you? Anything? 
What can others expect of you? Anything? So see, you define that. And yet some of us define it so narrowly. Our rights are so precious to us. We'll trample all over other people's rights, but yet ours are special. I am unique. John Owen said, The law of sin makes no opposition to any duty. Now, this seems counterintuitive. The law of sin makes no opposition to any duty, but to God in every duty. Do you see what he's saying? In that one little concise statement, he gets at the heart of the problem. The law of sin makes no opposition to any duty. In other words, do what you want. The old man doesn't care. But why are you doing it? That matters immensely to the old man because you have to be doing it for yourself to please the old man. If you're doing it for others, if you're doing it for God, if you're doing it to be selfless in deference to this conscience that God is refining within you, honing it to make it aware of his expectations, his sense of reasonableness to you, then you have this conflict. The law of sin makes no opposition to any duty. Go be a pastor. Go be a missionary. Satan doesn't care. As long as you're doing it selfishly, as long as you're doing it to please yourself and God be damned, now, of course, you don't think that way. You just think, I'm a wonderful person. I'm going to do wonderful things. God and everyone on earth should love me for it. See, that's how we think. We define ourselves based on what we do as opposed to why. Why we do it. Why we do it is everything. It's everything. Our message is serving God, right? That's the title. What does that imply? It implies that we're servants. And so if we're to serve God, that puts us in a serving capacity. And so we are actually more like indentured servants, bond slaves. God is more our master than our employer. Let me read 1 Corinthians. This is the text that I alluded to earlier. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, in, verse, in chapter 6, starting at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There was a pastor that I dearly loved long, long time ago when I newly became Reformed, and in a sermon, he read this verse, and he said, and you were bought at a terrible price. I thought, ooh, that's not scriptural. No, I didn't think that. But it's not. It's not in there. But yet... It's true, isn't it? You were bought at a terrible price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So see, when you hear the word servant, you think of someone who waits on people, right? We now call people that wait on us at restaurants servers. There are no more waitresses and waiters. They're all called servers. And so has your server been here yet? Is your server coming? I don't know when this occurred. I don't know. I guess it's politically incorrect to refer to waiters and waitresses anymore. But uh, last night, 
uh, we were at a village inn with uh, the Tremels from Wichita, and we had a great server. Uh, she brought us in, set us up at the table, and while we were waiting for them to arrive, um, some guy was going to start vacuuming, this young kid. I thought, wow, how rude. But she catches him. She's like, hey, put that away. I'll deal with that later. We don't want to bother them. I was like, hey, kudos for this lady. She knows what she's doing. And then she brought us our drinks. She brought us our food. I mean, she was a great server. And who was being served? Us, right? We were all there being served, and she was waiting on us. I looked uh, up the term for servant, you know, and, and especially like in Victorian England. And they had, in wealthy homes, they probably still do, but in wealthy estates over in England, listen to a lot of these terms. Land steward, house steward, butler, housekeeper, chef, valet, footman. Now, there you get into first footman, second footman. And then you have nurse, chambermaid. There you have downstairs maid, upstairs maid, parlor maid, housemaid, scullery maid, laundry maid, groom, stable boy, gardener, groundskeeper, gameskeeper, gatekeeper, governess. Those are all people. Those are terms for people that are servants in the home of a wealthy person. And what do they do? What is their job? To make the master or the mistress of the house happy. And actually, one thing that's interesting is that in an estate, how you make the master or mistress happy is by making the butler happy. The butler rules. The butler has all authority in the home, and his primary job is to prevent all you riffraff, you landscapers, gameskeepers, from getting at the master and the mistress. You're a buffer. He's a buffer between you and them. And so he's the one that's making sure it's all running smoothly. And the master and the mistress of the house never need to be bothered by any of this. It will all be just so, just as they want it. And in a home that's run really rigidly like this, they only ever have to interact with the butler, which makes it really easy for them. They just tell the butler, I want this, I want that. You know, this was left undone in this room. That was left undone in that room. It's the butler's head for this. It's his job to make sure that all of this flows smoothly. When I think of butlers and housekeepers especially, I think of Mr. French from Family Affair. I'm getting older. I'm going to have to stop using the illustrations eventually. But I also think of Alice from Brady Bunch with a housekeeper. I mean, this was my impression of butlers and maids, not this one from Victorian England where you have like 20 people or more at work on your estate. But yet, think of it hundreds of years before that in an aristocracy where you had a fiefdom, more or less, and everybody was a servant. You had just one family. You had one family, and they ruled over hundreds, potentially thousands of people, and they were all servants, and they were all treated like servants. That's what they were there for. They are the commoners. They are the common people. Now, let me read you Acts from, from Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God needs nothing from us. And yet, all of those names of people that I referred to over in some big estate in England, they all had duties, and they all had to please the master or the mistress, the butler at least. And so see, our God, 
does not need our service. He does not benefit personally by our service. This is something in a quote from uh, The Supremacy of God in Preaching by Piper. All God's actions flow from fullness, not from deficiency. Most human actions are motivated by the need to make up some deficit or supply some lack in ourselves. God never takes steps to supply his insufficiency. He performs no remedial exercises. As an absolutely sovereign and all-sufficient fountain, all his actions are the overflow of his fullness. This presents an interesting point to us being servants of God, slaves of God. God doesn't need us. So who are we serving by our actions? Who's benefiting by our actions as a servant on this earth, as a servant in God's church? Who benefits? You know the crazy thing? We do ourselves. When we serve God with our whole hearts, we do what it is that Paul is commanding us to do. God blesses us. Isn't it funny that God would make us all slaves, make us understand that reality, but then treat us far more like children, like his children. He's like a parent. Because, see, that's what it equates with. When we serve our parents, are they really benefiting for the most part? Oftentimes not. Oftentimes we serve our parents and it's poor service, it's pitiful service, but yet they love us. And so they accept this service as a good in itself, even though it is inadequate, really. If we were a true servant, we'd be fired. I'd have fired my children at times over the years. They do poor work at times. There are probably other kids who do much better work. Let's get rid of one of these kids and bring this other one in. Then the dishes will get done. But no, we love our children. You know, We give them these responsibilities and actually, for us, it is too for our good, but also we want them involved in the household chores and everything. They're humans. We all live in a world of need. They are fulfilling a lack, a deficiency in our home that we require filled. Whereas God does not need us. He has no lack. So this is all for our good. It is out of his overabundance that he blesses us with this. And that then takes us to our last word, and that was an O, by the way. I don't know if I ever said it. To satisfy was an O. It's outward. And now we get to the G, and that is, of course, glorify. And so in our text, in verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So see, to prove this is to bring glory to God because you're reinforcing God's principles. Back when we talked two weeks ago about knowing God and we talked about that Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, how we are to boast in God, what were we boasting in? We were boasting in God's character, that God is this loving, giving, just, merciful, righteous being. So God is glorified when we draw attention to that in our world. First Corinthians 10.31, we all know this if we don't know the reference. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Uh, 
you know, back during the Puritan era, it was common knowledge, really, for people to understand that there were no sacred or secular vocations. They are all sacred or secular because it's not about what you do. It's about why you're doing it. Are you doing it for God or are you doing it for yourself? So to the degree that we do it for God, we're doing it for sacred purposes. We want to glorify him, this, this being that has blessed us immensely. To the degree that we're doing it for ourselves, we're just more filled with pride. We're just more wanting to show off to people. And it is amazing how that can look so much like good things. No man knows the heart. It is filled with deceitful wickedness. And so outwardly, I can appear to be this wonderful, giving person. And yet inwardly, it's all focused towards glorifying myself. And so God is not glorified by such actions. So see, God has placed us on this earth. Each one of us have an entirely different path through this world. Yet each one of us is then responsible for dedicating all of their actions to either glorify God, have it be sacred, and have it be of value, or expend it on my own lusts, glorify myself, pride. And we dilute our treasure, our commendation from God, over and over and over again, when instead of drawing attention to God, we draw attention to ourselves. And, and we often see this failing in ourselves and others, and we kick ourselves if we could. You know, why did I do that again? Why am I throwing my treasure away? I'm, I want to do this wonderful stuff for God, and yet I can't prevent myself from crowing about it. And God just takes it away because I'm now trying to take the glory for myself. So see, humans... We're created to serve. We are servants. We are slaves. Deuteronomy 28, 47 reads this, and it's so clear. He's speaking of the curses that will come upon them if they abandon him. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and with gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. That's all God expects of us. He wants us to be thankful. He wants us to be appreciative, and he wants us to remember that it is he that is providing all of this and not we ourselves. And yet it is that simple thing that we just tend to forget over and over and over again. We complain bitterly. We make excuses, and we long to be doing something different in God's world. We are unhappy. And yet we take so little time to be thankful for who God is and for where we are in position to him. When I look around at the lost at my work, I am just in awe. I am in awe of God's choice. I mean, how can he possibly exercise such compassion on me when I have so little true thankfulness, so little true appreciation for what it is that he's done, because I can be so petty, I can be so forgetful of his goodness, uh, how is it that he can keep showering love on me? 
It's, it just astounds me over and over because I look around at people and I think, you know, in this last meeting, people couldn't have discriminated between the fact that this person is not a Christian and I am. As a matter of fact, maybe the reverse. Maybe I behaved worse than this other unbeliever. And yet God does. He does distinguish. It does have meaning. And yet he tolerates all of this ugliness that is still in our characters. And for that, we should be filled with joy, glad of heart, and thankful, deeply, deeply thankful. So this message is on serving God, but I didn't give you one thing to go do this, that, or the other thing, did I? Scripture is filled with them. It's not as it's not. It's just why we serve is a thousand million trillion times more important than what you do. And I want you to be clear in that. God has given us a world full of needs. He's given us a church full of needs. Go forth. Serve. There are a thousand things you could do that would be helpful to others today, to the church today. But remember why you're doing it. You're doing it out of a heart that is filled with joy and thankfulness. You're doing it for a God that needs nothing. And so we dare not go back and brag to God about what we did today or we did last week. We thank you, God, for having done this through me. It's amazing what you're doing. How can you possibly do this through us? We broken people. But yet this is what he wants. He just wants to be appreciated for what he has done. So first, sanctify yourself. Remember the hedges. Read and pray daily. They are at times tedious, boring even, but they're so useful. If there's any one thing that you can do for five or ten minutes in a day, it's that. Because God will use that to protect you from evil and to root evil out of that storehouse that exists in your heart. Two, crucify your desires. Obey your hedges. Set them up where you need them. Detect the desire that you have in your heart to lust, to gossip, to be bitter, to be selfish and self-centered. Pray for transformation. The Holy Spirit does it. You avail yourself. You say, God, please change me. I don't like who I am today. Please make me different. Four, serve gladly. It is your reasonable service. It is all of our reasonable service. And what is truly amazing is that the beneficiary is you. You serve a God that needs nothing, but yet he accepts that and credits it to your account. And he blesses you with that. In Mark 10, what is it that Jesus said? He said, Peter said, we have left all and followed you. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So see, when you identify with the church, when you identify with your brethren, when you sacrifice that which is dirty and sullen and, and horrible anyway, God gives you into his kingdom and you are treated with such welcome. So see, be a servant. Be a godly servant. If you are a servant that is 
want in it for yourself, that comes out very quickly. But if you want to be a servant, be a selfless servant. Serve well. Serve God alone through serving others. And lastly, live for God. Ask how you can please him. Last week's message was on pleasing him. And the reason that was second was that we didn't want to have it be before, we wanted to have it be before serving. We didn't want service to come first. So see, you want to know God. You need to know God. And then you want to know God because you want to please him. And we've just talked about pleasing him. And then you serve him. You go out into the fields and you serve him now. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it does exist to direct us what to do, but more so, much more so, why it's so important that we do it your way. So, Lord, I pray that you would take away from us all selfish desire. Uh, Give us instead, Lord, over to be selfless for your sake and for the sake of your kingdom. We thank you for the mercy that you have poured out upon us, and we thank you for the treasure that you are laying up on our behalf in heaven. We thank you for the fact that we have brothers and sisters and homes on this earth. And we pray, Lord, that we would appreciate them. We thank you now for your goodness, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would apply this truth to our hearts, and we thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, who showed us how to do all these things perfectly. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.